Hello everyone and welcome to Mental Health Much. My name is Vincent and I'm a French-Canadian psychotherapist living in Toronto. As a therapist, I'm fascinated by anything that has to do with mental health. So on this podcast, I invite friends and colleagues over to talk about it. Being a gay man, I'm obviously more interested in anything that's queer-related, as well as topics that are pro-feminist, pro-trans, and anti-racist. This week, I'm meeting with my friend Mackenzie to talk about seasonal depression. Hi, Mackenzie. Hi, Vincent. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on my podcast. I'm really excited to talk about seasonal depression as we're like entering the spring. I was just thinking about that this week and I'm thinking it's probably easier to talk about seasonal depression right now than it would have been in January. Exactly. Now is the time to talk about it when you're coming out of it. So for our audience, listen today, but maybe next November, come back and listen to this episode a second time, and hopefully it might be useful for you. 100%. So Mackenzie, we've been friends for only a couple years, I think, and we used to have our Sunday night dinners together before COVID hit, and um It was a really cute little tradition that I actually is one of the things that I have been missing. Yes, I do miss those dinners. Such a nice ritual. For people who don't know you, Mackenzie, who are you? Well, I am a 31-year-old queer, trans, non-binary person. Uh, I go by they, them, or she, her pronouns. Um, I was born on the East Coast in a land we know as Moncton, New Brunswick. That is uh, the territory of Mi'kmaq peoples at the moment. And I moved to Toronto about 10 years ago. And since then, I've been doing a bunch of stuff. I'm a graphic designer, arts worker, occasional podcast guest. And <laughs> uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Being from the East Coast. You also speak French, but we're not going to keep this today fully in English. Yes. While French is my first language, English is currently my primary language. <laughs> I don't even know which one is my primary language <laughs> at this point. Fair. <laughs> uh, Mackenzie, I asked this question to everyone, and you know because you've listened to the podcast. What is your relationship with mental health? Yeah, so I see mental health as um, the internal struggles that uh, we as humans have to deal with because, you know, we are both blessed and cursed with awareness of the self and awareness of the world around us. And so mental health is just the ways that we work to upkeep our minds and try to survive the world in the interior as opposed to like the physical So the way you talk about it, we're doomed to suffer. And then mental health is the way that we try to not suffer as much. In a way, I think so, yeah. That makes sense, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really interested to talk about seasonal depression. It was not originally the topic we wanted to talk about together, but as we were doing our pre-interview, it kind of became a central point for our conversation today. So I know I've helped you pick this topic a little bit, but what made you choose this topic? What interests you in this topic? I've had to deal with depression for a lot of my life. I was always a very sensitive child. Uh, and then as a teenager, when certain life events happened and certain hormones were introduced, uh, then I was forced to reckon with the fact that I was very probably depressed. Um, and a few years after that, while seeing a psychiatrist, she pointed out to me that the depression seemed to have a pattern to it, that it seemed to get worse in the winter. Um, and that, that seemed to be the time where it was aggravated and I was at my most depressed. And it's just something that I've had to deal with for my whole life since then. But knowing that it's seasonal affective disorder Uh, has helped me to cope with it. It's helped me to gain some strategies that I find really helpful. And I feel like I'm in a place now where I can talk about it with you. Would you say that you hate winter? You know what? No, I, I don't hate winter. 
as a child, I always loved winter. Like I loved Christmas. I loved playing in the snow. But winter is, I, I'd say I have a fraught relationship with winter because it because it brings like the darkness and the isolation, then I don't get to feel as energized as I would the rest of the year. But in the last few years, I've, you know, redeveloped a love of winter and I've had to, you know, think about ways that I can appreciate winter that doesn't involve having to go out in the snow and that I can still get the benefits of sunlight and being outside while being in the winter, you know? And that's nice to know that you can suffer from seasonal depression and still manage to have maybe a love-hate, but at least there's some love (laughs) in the relationship with winter. Exactly, yeah. So before we say too much, let's just jump into a quick break and we'll be right back to really discuss seasonal depression. Welcome back. We are talking about seasonal depression with Mackenzie, and I'm really excited to hear more from you. And if it makes sense as a place to start, either for people who are experiencing seasonal depression and they want to hear from another human that their experience is very similar to theirs, because that's so affirming, or for people who don't experience it as much or don't know what we're talking about, could you tell us a little bit more? what it feels like for you. How do we experience seasonal depression? Yeah, so seasonal depression and depression as a whole, really, for me, manifests as overeating, oversleeping. Uh, So those might be some of the physical symptoms that I experience. And then for the emotional and mental symptoms, then it's, I would have to say, you know, uh, profound sense of sadness about the world, uh, a sense of hopelessness, of dread and anxiety, and like a feeling that nothing has or will ever go right, which of course is all irrational. Mm-hmm. But I think that's that's the the crux of depression for me is just, it's it's a feeling of not being able to go on or of not not wanting to go on and just wanting just relief, I guess, from the pains of existence. And seasonal depression specifically manifests during the winter because of the lack of sunlight primarily, but also I would say the lack of physical activity. It's like regular depression, but it just gets worse in the winter. You know, it gets aggravated And I can feel it coming on when the days are getting shorter and especially like when the time changes in the fall (laughs) and suddenly it's dark out at (laughs) 4.30. You know, I'm like, I need to get my my light therapy lamp out. (laughs) There was so many talks last fall about removing that time change forever. And is that going to happen? Is that not going to happen? I don't know. We don't know. But like, can it please? Because I don't think we need it anymore. (laughs) Um, I'm pretty sure Justin Trudeau is listening to our podcast right now and realizing that this is the thing to do for Canada. Justin, this is your priority now. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned several things about depression. And one thing that resonated with me said it's it's sadness. It's just you experience a lot of sadness. Can you talk a little bit more about that sadness? I think that sadness stems from internal conflicts that arise when there's a, a discord between like what you want and what you have. So as a teenager, I remember like one of the main reasons I became depressed was as a as a queer teenager I felt like I would never find love and Mm -hmm. it was it was heartbreaking because you know I I didn't have the perspective that I do now I felt that because nobody had loved me in the one year that I was out as a as a queer man then no one would ever love me. <laughs> and again, it's it's irrational, but 
it's part of the the train of thought that is, you know, is depression when you get trapped in it. it you can't get out of it. Yeah, I think we all need to remember that one year in the life of a teenager, especially a queer teenager, is very long. Absolutely, yeah. Like, I thought my high school experience would never end. Like, I thought I was trapped in that hell forever, you know? And I was only in, like, grade 10. Or the metaphor that I use for for sadness and depression often is, like, uh, being lost in a forest, if you will. Like a, like a haunted, misty forest and not having a way out, not having any support, and just being lost and alone. And that was a lot of my experience having depression. I asked this question around sadness because often as a therapist, those two words, they get very confused. Am I depressed or am I sad? What is a clinical depression? What is just chronic sadness? And at the end of the day, it's just a label and Nobody cares all that much. It's about how people feel. But for some people, they experience depression, not so much as sadness, but as numbness. So it's almost like they had to pull the switch off of their emotions because they just could not handle feeling that much. Normally, you know, those quote unquote negative emotions like loss, loneliness, sadness, and they just pull the switch and then nothing brings them any sort of emotions. So that includes lost in sadness, but it also includes joy and excitement and in connection with other people. Do you find that when you are in those lower levels of sadness, it's harder to connect with people, it's harder to experience joy? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's all consuming at times. For me, it's like, it gets to the point where the sadness is no longer um, a passive emotion. It, it becomes a part of me and it consumes other aspects of my life, it becomes a quote unquote disease, if you will, or disorder is like when, when it starts to affect your life. And for a lot of people, and for me as well, it has manifested as numbness because a lot of the time it's easier to feel numb than to feel, you know, searing pain. And yeah, that does translate to how I experience joy, how I experience relationships. And it's, it has been, you know, difficult at times to, to deal with. Yeah. yeah. And you talked about physically, you notice it from sleeping more. It makes sense. All that sadness, all that numbness, plus the shorter days, everybody is more tired in the winter. So you experience that. And overeating. And I'm guessing you're not craving salads and uh, <laughs> and definitely fr- not. tomatoes definitely not no ice cream and chips all the way but yeah like those those are our manifestations of depression i think and in a lot of ways can also contribute to that cycle well, oversleeping specifically for me was uh one of the big things that i had to contend with like i lived in a basement for a year of my life and didn't have much sunlight. And it was just like, it was painful because I would sleep in until like noon, one o'clock in the afternoon without really realizing that like the day had started. Just completely shifts my sleep schedule and I'm up all night and sleeping all day. And it's just not contributing like at all to my mental health. (laughs) And I think it's important to talk about those things to normalize those things. Obviously the oversleeping, the overeating, they're not helping, they're not making things better, but they're a coping strategy sometimes in the moment and not in the long term. But sometimes today, right now, with what I have, I'm going to eat those chips and I'm going to go to bed. Yes, exactly. It's a, it's a fine line between self-care and self-harm. <laughs> That's a very good quote. Uh, we should print t-shirts with that. We joked about it a little bit with the time change (laughs) but how does it feel for you when the fall arrives when fall arrives and the leaves are turning colors and the days are getting shorter it's I get a lot of mixed feelings because on the one hand like I quite enjoy fall like aesthetically it's a it's a nice season it's very witchy and I love Halloween and 
Um, but it also signals winter. And for me, that usually means depression. And it means that, you know, there's going to be a few months where I'm going to have to deal with this thing in my life. I have to, you know, be more diligent about making sure that I do my mental health, my mental health upkeep. It's also a period of life that is just really busy. You know, it's the middle of the school year. You no longer have that energy of something new is beginning and you don't yet have the excitement of something is nearly ending. We're just sort of like in the middle of it. Exactly. Yeah. And like December, especially, I feel like there's a lot of pressure for to be social and to have, um, you know, the, it's the holiday season and everyone's having their, their parties and whatnot. And for me, it's like I dread it because, you know, the last thing I want to be when I'm depressed is social. And so I find it, it, it I find it hard to navigate that that period specifically because of the depression it's like i'm expected to show up to these holiday gatherings and put on a smile when really like i'd rather just stay home and sleep Mm -hmm. does um weirdly does being social help you get out of the depression a little bit or is it just exhausting because being social is exhausting It, it actually does a bit help um it's hard because it's getting to that, getting myself to that point where I feel good enough to go out. That is the challenge. But I feel like once I am out and once I am around people, like I do find it quite energizing and like nice, but it is also exhausting at the same time, you know, like it's, it's a bit of both. So like, I don't think I'm, I'm particularly introverted or extroverted, but I, I like going out and seeing people and it's energizing, but after like an hour, I just need to go home. There's this thing that's really nice when, and I'm going to say I, when I feel really tired from life and burnout and I force myself to do something and now suddenly I'm tired in a different way. Like my body is tired because I went hiking or I did something and it's still tired. I'm, I'm still feeling tired, but it's great to experience a different types of tiredness. Sometimes you're just brain tired and, you know, you're, you're like, I have energy to be awake, but not enough to be social or think really. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or I'm too tired to do anything, but for some unknown reason, there's no way I can fall asleep. Yes. Oh, that eternal restless feeling at night. It's the worst. Yeah. You talked about uh, being a teenager and being a queer teenager and starting to experience that depression, what was that like for you? I came out of the closet when I was about 15 years old. And it was, it kind of coincided with the time that I was experiencing depression. And I remember being told for the first time by one of my friends, like, Mackenzie, I think you might be depressed. And that was when I first sought help. Um, mm-hmm. so the first person that I talked to was my English teacher of all people, uh, just because I felt like I had a connection with her as many queer kids do. Oh yeah. Teachers are amazing. I mean, mine was a French teacher, but fair yes. enough. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I saw my English teacher and, you know, I told her that I was feeling down and, you know, I was also, um, I'd also started practicing self-harm and she was like, okay, like, I, I think you should see the school psychologist. And so I went to see the psychologist for a bit. It, and it was like around February that uh, I, I told her that I, you know, I was having suicidal ideation and that I, I didn't know if I could keep on living. And she was like, okay, uh, I have to call your father now. And you know, I can't let you leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was my first experience of being hospitalized. Um, my father drove me to the hospital and I was admitted there and stayed there for two weeks. And it was weird because it provided me with a space to be able to heal in some ways. Like 
being in the hospital meant that I wasn't in in high school, which was a big trigger for me. Like I, yeah. I really, really didn't want to be there. And then that was that was the first time that I I was forced to reckon with my my own depression. And after that hospitalization, I kept seeing the psychiatrist. And then, as I mentioned earlier, it was a few years later that uh, she told me this seems like a pattern. You seem to be getting worse in the winter. You might benefit from from light therapy. She let me her lamp. And within within a week, I noticed the benefits. Mm-hmm. Being able to, to sit in front of it in the morning and get 20 minutes of light was surprisingly like incredibly beneficial for me. You mentioned your depression and your coming out and small town on the East Coast. That must have been fairly confusing. There's a lot that happened. I think you said earlier in the podcast, you first came out as a gay man or as a queer man. You were probably not having any sort of language. Um, And for me, I'm a cis man. And when I found the label of gay man, I was quite content with it. I was like, oh, this is what I am. This is who I am. But maybe you did not have that full language and it probably was even more confusing. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I, For me, coming out as a gay man didn't really feel right. Um, I felt like I was more coming out as a person who liked men and liked masculine people. Mm-hmm. And because it had been drilled into me that I was a boy for my whole life, then I assumed that this gay man label fit me, right? And it wasn't until pro- like 10, 12 years later as a, an adult, like 27-year-old adult, that I realized, oh, maybe maybe I'm not a man, you know? Maybe I don't have to be this. Maybe there are other things, um, which was interesting because I had known trans people and I knew a lot about the trans community But I didn't really ascribe that to myself, even though I knew that I didn't fit the typical mold of what it meant to be a quote-unquote man. It wasn't until I was like 28 that, you know, there was one day I was on a TTC and I had a flash, you know, it was like a revelation. It was like, oh, I'm trans, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And it was so... It was like a weight off my shoulders. It was like mm-hmm. years worth of transphobia and transmisogyny that I had internalized had suddenly been lifted off my shoulders and I could be more myself. And I was like, yes, this is it. I think trans fits. I think trans fits. Uh, it's funny because I had the same moment with my homosexuality where It was actually in an English class where I was obviously not listening to what was happening. And I I remember having that moment of being like, oh, I'm gay. And it was just like, oh, okay, this is what's up. And then right after I was like, oh, no, I'm going to have to tell people. It's going to be awkward. (laughs) Yes, that's the second thought. It's like you realize it for yourself and then you're like, oh, shit. I should probably tell people now. <laughs> like, that's where the trouble comes. <laughs> did that shift, did that realization help you at all with your struggle with depression? Yes. Um, I think in a lot of ways it did. It allowed me to live more authentically. In realizing I was trans, there was a lot when I thought about like my life as a kid and as a teenager that suddenly made a lot of sense, you know, like mm-hmm. wanting to wear dresses in kindergarten. And suddenly I, I'm able to wear dresses in real life and not feel guilty about it. It was such a relief to be able to experience that feeling of like, hey, like if I want to wear a fucking skirt, then I'll wear a skirt. Does that help at all? in the winter, like being able to play with your gender expression? It does. And I have to be intentional about it because in the wintertime there, and especially during a pandemic, there's less opportunity to, to go out and to present yourself in a lot of ways. And so it's hard to feel gender, so to speak, when you're alone, 
and you're in a room, mm-hmm. right? It's like gender is something that to me, we, we can talk about in social terms because of how it manifests in society. But for me, it was hard to feel genderful, if you will, when there's no opportunity to, to be gendered. And so I found a lot of pleasure in, in dressing up in my room and in wearing stuff that I might not typically be comfortable wearing in public and in taking selfies and, you know, being happy and proud of what I look like. (laughs) And like, it was, it's incredible, like how much it contributes to like a positive self-image, like people will deride selfies, but I think they're pretty important for (laughs) (laughs) self-love. Yeah, totally. And we're back on my episode with David about social media. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) You talked about being in therapy from being fairly young and you know that experience very young as a queer person, not in a huge city and almost like 15 years ago. What about finding a therapist was important for you? Were there some therapists that were more helpful than others? How did they help your depression and your seasonal depression? When I was coming out as trans, it was also around a time when I was burning myself out at work. I was having a lot of mental health troubles. And so I decided to, for the first time as an adult, seek out a psychotherapist. So you had this school counselor and that psychiatrist as a, as a teenager, almost as, as a, a kid? Exactly. Yeah. So I hadn't seen a therapist uh, since moving to Toronto, essentially. So okay. um, my last experience before, like as a teenager was in New Brunswick, seeing a psychiatrist and a psychologist um, and a social worker. And then for most of my 20s, I, I didn't feel like I needed a therapist, or at least I didn't want one. Um, so when 27 rolled around and I'm trans and burnt out. I seek out a psychotherapist and my work at the time had like a benefits plan where I could get therapy covered, but I wasn't able to choose the therapist. Mm -hmm. So the one that they had assigned me, I booked an appointment with and I went to that appointment and it was one of the worst experiences that I'd ever had in my life. The The office was very much like a, a stereotypical psychologist's office, like books lined the shelves on the wall everywhere. You're not a real therapist if you don't have a lot of books in your office. That's fair, very important. That's fair, yeah. <laughs> but this therapist did not really make the effort to, to make me feel comfortable. And throughout the session, like there were moments of where like I was like what am I doing here like this this therapist was referring to other patients of hers and she was like misgendering them so she was talking about other trans patients and referred to a trans girl as he she (laughs) which is a big (laughs) no-no yeah And I realized then and there, like how important it was to find a therapist who would be affirming of the spectrum of gender identity and sexuality. Mm -hmm. So I reached out to my family doctor who provided me with the list of queer friendly therapists. And the first one that I contacted on that list, her bio said that she worked with uh, LGBT people and artists and in our email communications, she had her pronouns in her signature, which I thought was a great sign. And yeah, we had a session and we, we just really clicked and vibed so well together. That was probably one of the most important tools for me to gain a better handle on my mental health as an adult was was finding that therapist with whom I had a good connection with. Every studies about therapy is going to tell you what's most important when working with someone. It's not necessarily their credential. It's not how many letters they have after their name. Obviously, we want them to be ethical, but it's mostly about what is the connection that I have 
with this therapist. So I'm, I'm grateful that you were able to find one for yourself. Thank you. Yeah, me too. Another thing I know that has really helped you is your spirituality. And it's the big word. It's the big S word. Tell us more what you mean by spirituality and how it was important for you. The therapist that I saw, um, she was so helpful in pushing me to explore a more spiritual side that I had really lost contact with. And in some ways, I just maybe never had, you know, I was raised Catholic, but I never really felt that connection to the Catholic Church, you know, aside from from Christmas gatherings and whatnot, mm -hmm. like I, I really was not a, a good Catholic, to be quite honest. <laughs> so when as an adult, I'd had an ex who was uh, very much into witchcraft And they introduced me to magic, essentially. And I discovered magic as a form of spirituality, thanks to my therapist who helped me push it, push boundaries on that. It's been so helpful in, as a tool to better my mental health, essentially. And I think like spirituality as a whole is kind of like the framework with which people can look at and think about their lives that is beyond what we see and like the physical world. And so I think that works really well with mental health because there is, there's so much that we can't see about our minds. And so magic and witchcraft for me has been the tools and language with which that I've been able to explore my mental health and my identity and really take ownership of, of things in my life. Uh, for example, I chose the last name of Gray as a, a signifier for depression because of that, that grayness that exists in my life. You know, I think the act of being able to choose my name was in itself very spiritual. And I'm sure there is a scientific explanation for it, you know, maybe like a, a neural connection in my mind, but I think it's so much fun to, to think about it as magic and yeah. as, as something that is inexplicable, you know? It's that, that mystery and awe. And this is not something we've talked about together a lot, but when you talk about it, what I'm hearing, well, first I'm making some assumptions because for me, magic is very connected to nature. Mm -hmm. And there's something really grounding in nature and you were mentioning a sort of connection, explanation, something that's bigger than me. And I know that magic is very grounded in those rituals also. So all of these things make a lot of sense that they would help. Call it magic, call it mindfulness, uh, call it what you want. I love that you find this word that works for you. And it is kind of grounding and secure. And it explains maybe some of the things that don't have an explanation in our life. Exactly. Yeah. Like when you, when you mentioned nature, like that, that very much resonated with me because I think of magic and the, the spiritual aspect of witchcraft to be very much rooted in the elements of nature, you know, like earth, air, fire, and water are like the four typical ones that I use, but there are different ones for different cultures thinking about those elements and feeling grateful for them, feeling a connection to them has, like you said, been incredibly grounding. Um, it's helped me think about the world in, in new ways and yeah, like create rituals that I can, I can connect with, you know, that are personal to me. You know, it's not the, not the rituals that are taught to me by, tradition and Catholicism, but the ones that I create for myself, which are grounded in nature. Mm -hmm. Which probably helps within the cycle of seasons passing, and we're back to seasonal depression. Exactly. Part of worshiping nature is worshiping the cycles in it, and seasons are one of the main parts of that. Mm -hmm. Because it's cold out, we spend more time indoors, we are more introspective, 
Um, and magic and spirituality has allowed me to, to frame winter in this way as a time for renewal, as a time for introspection and being a hermit in a way that is healthy and necessary at times. I found it really helpful for that. Summer is, is easy to love, but winter I find is challenging, but magic has allowed me to express my love of winter in a new way. I love that this gives you language to interact with the world around you. And I'm hearing in between the lines that it also gave you a community. You mentioned your ex. So I'm thinking there's probably kind of a community that helps you with those rituals in that language. And that's probably very healing. My partner's family often celebrates winter solstice as opposed to Christmas, which is more grounded in the astrological aspect of the season. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the fact that the days are at their shortest and when we get our least amount of sunlight. And magic and spirituality has, like you said, been able to offer me some kind of community because I, I can talk to other people about certain things and we have that common ground, right? You know, a lot of religions, that is the, the common ground in cultures. But I feel like witchcraft is, is not rooted in like institutional power, if you will, but rather like in the personal. So every witch kind of has their own way of looking at the world and perceiving it. But there is a lot of it is the same language that we use, right? And I think like as queers, especially, we are drawn to that because it's not rooted in the the typical homophobia that one might experience from from traditional religions and a, a lot of queer people i think are drawn to to things like astrology and the tarot because it gives them the language to be introspective and to do some some self reflection right and that's i think Another reason why magic and astrology and spirituality has been important to me is being able to explore that, that interior realm, that psychic realm, if you will, and not, not be afraid by it and be able to witness my depression in a sense and to hold space for it. Yeah, I think it's very powerful what you say that completely removing spirituality from our lives. It works for certain people, but not for everyone. And I'm glad that a lot of people nowadays, they're able to reconnect with their spiritual self with being able to be one step away from those institutions that were transphobic and homophobic. There are also people who go the other way and they're trying to make changes inside those institutions. And, you know, I tip my hat to those people because <laughs> I don't have that kind of time and energy. But I think both are equally important in what's really, it's, it's a form of self-care. And I think it's really important. I think a lot of people in our gen generation tend to be not just atheist, but also anti-theist. And so like I've encountered a lot of, of people who, who denigrate religion and spirituality. But I think, you know, Like they have their uses, you know, they're, mm -hmm. I think with many things, they are, there are tools with which we can do good and we can also do bad. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way I could, one could argue that for me, the grand world of mental health could be almost a religion or, or spirituality for me, because that's really how I ground myself and my understanding of the world and what's happening around us. I think that's great because spirituality comes up in a lot of surprising places, I think. So we've talked a lot about different things. Is there anything about seasonal depression or any of the subtopics we've talked about that you want to mention before we go on our second and last break? What I want to close off with is spirituality is something that I think more people should explore and not be afraid of because of how helpful it has been to me 
as far as mental health goes. But obviously that's not true for everyone. But I, I guess this is a, a plea for people to, to be more open about spirituality. Yeah, it's one of those words that is so loaded with meanings, both positive and negative for people. And sometimes it's hard to go there. On that note, we'll take another little break and we will talk coming back about other things that have helped you with seasonal depression. Mackenzie, we're in the last section of my podcast, which is a little bit of a place where we talk about coping strategies and what has helped you and what could maybe help other people if they are suffering with seasonal depression. You mentioned earlier on luminotherapy. For people who don't know what that is or people who don't really think it could work for them, can you tell us more how it works for you, what it means for you? Absolutely. Yeah. So luminotherapy or light therapy is a form of therapy that involves uh, having a, a sufficiently bright enough lights. Usually they're especially designed lights. And essentially you sit in front of it for about 15 to 20 minutes. I usually do it in the morning. I think it's recommended to do it in the morning in order to help regulate the body. But I found it incredibly helpful for seasonal depression, um, just because it helps give me that extra boost of, you know, fake sunlight that is needed. It's like one of my rituals for the morning. It's just being able to, to sit in front of the light, uh, have a coffee, do a bit of reading, catch up on social media. And it's just been wonderful. And I think if you're able to even just going outside for, you know, five, 10 minutes every day in the morning, will do wonders for, for one's mental health. Yeah, that's something I realized for myself with the, in the past year because of COVID that I normally would walk to work. And I was really missing that, even though it was not the longest walk. I don't think it was for the exercise. I think it was maybe for the fresh air and for the light and just leaving my apartment, really. I've heard that being close to nature and trees can also be very helpful. So I, I try to go for walks like at a park specifically, just in order to try to feel more connected to nature because it's hard to come by when you're when you live in downtown Toronto. Yeah, completely. <laughs> so you've talked about your spirituality and witchcraftery and is that even a word? And <laughs> <laughs> it is now. <laughs> um, and it comes with a lot of ritual. What are some of those? What are some of those rituals that help you? One of the ones that I found really helpful at the start was having daily tarot readings for myself. Um, so I, I got a tarot deck um, a couple of years ago and in trying to, to learn more about the tarot and its different cards, I just was doing daily readings um, for myself. And I found it so helpful just to have, have it was like having a conversation with myself. You know, I, mm -hmm. could, I could pull a card and think about that card and think about a certain aspect of my life. And that card would help frame that, Thing for me in a new way and in a lot like a lot of time that was you know just incredibly helpful to to move forward with something to to give me the courage to do something or to remind me to do something sometimes you get the hermit card and it's like okay you girl you need to take a step back and like <laughs> chill for a sec you know <laughs> i love you're saying it's giving you this self-talk, like this conversation with yourself. But again, I'm using your language and I'm putting in my language, but uh, the uh, the act of holding the cards, it's probably very grounding. Like fidget toys in therapy are a thing and being able to hold something in your hand that helps you stay grounded in the present while you're having self-talk, I'm sure it's really helpful to ground you in the present.
now that you mention that, like that is kind of the case. I get a lot of pleasure from shuffling cards. And so yeah. getting to shuffle a deck before doing a tarot reading and then just holding the deck in my hands while thinking about a question or a topic that I had in mind was was one of the best parts because it was, you know, it's a nice deck and it's something to to come back to and it is grounding for sure. Yeah, and it's a special object that belongs to you in that you've probably, if you bought one special that you liked, that you put a lot of love and energy into it. As an earth sign, <laughs> supposedly I'm supposed to be very materialist. But to me, that doesn't necessarily translate into like uh, an obsession with objects or a love of wealth. But I do, I do get pleasure from from physical objects. I love physical books as opposed to eBooks. I love holding a deck of cards and even stones. Um, like I have a little quartz crystal, and I keep it on a plate that has the cycles of the moon on it. And so what I do is every few days, um, I move the stone to the next phase of the moon. And the act of that in itself is like just incredibly grounding because it's like, it's something that I can come back to every few days and just be like, okay, you know, the, the, it marks the passage of time. It, mm -hmm. it creates a, a ritual that gives me a feeling of comfort and safety. Keeps you rooted in the present instead of completely lost in the chaos of the world. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I often think about projects like in in monthly terms, like in a in a moon's turn, if you will. So getting to see like where we are in a moon cycle is like, okay, so like the full moon is coming up. I should be about like, halfway through this project. And <laughs> I might use that as a as a time to create a ritual a full moon ritual to help me refocus my intentions on that particular project. That's that's really cute, actually. Uh, <laughs> I'm I never, glad you think I, so. <laughs> I've like never ever in my years of living thought about the time passing as the phases of the moon, but now <laughs> I will. <laughs> that's great. Are there other rituals that have helped you with seasonal depression? Yes. Um, so mindfulness and meditation has been incredibly helpful, um, especially during the pandemic when I, I really can't go out as much. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's a feeling of restlessness that comes with not being able to go out. And so meditation and mindfulness has really just helped me deal with that. And as I mentioned at the start, a lot of what I feel in depression that comes from Uh, the conflicts between wants and haves mm -hmm. can be soothed by meditation and mindfulness because it allows me to connect with a, a part of myself that, you know, feels whole. Yeah, just slow down. Yeah. And experience the moment, which I think a lot of rituals are serving exactly that purpose. Mm -hmm. in people's life. And I love that your rituals are more rituals about being grounded in the present versus ritual of eating bad food and forgetting the day that we are because I'm watching four hours of Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what else has helped you? What else has helped me? I think one of the more important aspects, I would say, has really just been accepting the fact that I have depression and there is really no cure for. And so you kind of just have to deal with it for your life. Accepting depression for me feels like I am welcoming it into my space rather than trying to fight it. Mm -hmm. And by doing so, I am alleviating some of the internal conflicts that I feel about having depression. I've taken it as part of me. I've like taken it on and I can treat it as a family member almost. And yeah. when I feel depressed now, it I don't feel the same 
kind of like panic and dread that I used to. I It's almost like welcoming an old friend and being like, you know, I, I've dealt with this before and I'll do it again. And I have all of these coping mechanisms and strategies that I know how to deal with. Yeah. And I, I will get through it. That in itself has been like, it gives me hope, which I think like going back to my earlier point about feeling hopeless is so crucial for countering depression because it gives me something to live for, a feeling that things can go on and things will, will go on. I love that you call it family member because one of the, one of the theory that I love in mental health is called family system therapy, uh, internal family system therapy. And it's about having these parts of you and depression is one part. Instead of having to fix it or to remove it, it's about having better communication <laughs> and having a, a nicer understanding and seeing like, oh, my depression is here. What does it want from me? What does it need? How can I welcome it without letting it take over my life, but without having also to fix it and be perfect and cure myself? And often when people start therapy, they're looking for a cure, they're looking for a fix, they're looking for a strategy that's going to remove that. And unfortunately, that's very rarely what therapy offers. It can help with some of the symptoms, obviously, but you're right that it won't necessarily remove. And I think accepting it as a part of you is a nice way to talk about it. Humans are so complex and we contain a multitudes, if you will. And I think thinking about mental health and what we describe as mental illnesses as something that is a part of you and that is a feature of being human rather than a defect, I think has helped me cope with depression. And yeah. it, it's like a, a metaphysical way of, of dealing with depression. You know, it's like, treating it like an old friend. What a beautiful way to end this episode. Mackenzie, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me and to be with everyone here today. Thank you so much for having me, Vincent. It's been a real pleasure. If people love you and want to know more about you, can they find you on social media? Or are you a private person and you don't want people <laughs> to get inside <laughs> your life? I am absolutely not a private person. And I would be happy to accept new followers on social media. Uh, folks can find me on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, my handle is at M-C-K-N-Z-G-R-E-Y. I will put that in the description of the podcast. And thank you again for being here. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Do not hesitate to give me a rating or a comment and to subscribe to this podcast. If you want to stay in touch with me, follow the Mental Health Much Instagram account. Until the next episode, please keep talking about mental health to everyone as much as you can and keep safe. Bye.